Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Hey everyone, it's Jeremy Scheinwald, and I'm back with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things. And this is kind of a <laughs> sequel and kind of not. I got Sam Rosen here again. You'll see uh, last episode, I believe they even posted back to back, was uh, Sam Rosen 1. And Sam and I, we talked a lot about wrestling for like 10 minutes at the beginning, and we ate away at the clock, just kind of <laughs> having fun. And we talked a lot about his previous ventures, uh, Scaffold, Speakergram, and all these other things. And by the time we were done blabbing, uh, I, I had a great time with him. We got along like old friends, I think, and and, sure. uh, and we were just making plans to potentially ski together uh, before the show. So I think we're getting along really well. But the one thing we didn't do is talk about, I think, his most interesting venture, which is Make Space. <laughs> well, I didn't tell you that. I actually just wanted part two because I need better SEO. Like Sam Rosen, the sportscaster for the Rangers, is really killing me. So I hope this thing gets publicly linked. Uh, I hope so, too. Moving up on the first page. I hope so, too. And and that reminds me to tell you guys, uh, if you're listening to the show and, and enjoying it, please go to iTunes and like the show because it helps us um, us do better with the podcast and helps guys like Sam Rosen who are volunteering their time to tell you his entrepreneurial story um, to, to, to gain a higher profile and so I don't know thus the world and the internet go round um, so we're back with Sam I was feeling a little tired this morning and Sam is my highest energy guest so I had, <laughs> I had I'm not joking I had two large lattes uh, in order to try and keep up with them um, but last time we talked all about his other ventures and we didn't really spend that much time on Make Space so um this was we talked a couple we probably talked about I don't know three or four weeks ago and mm-hmm. uh, and I don't I'm actually not I don't know if we're going to pick up exactly where we left off but let's just go that's sure. uh, and I should also say in, there is another guest here today yes Stanley Lord Stanley Lord, sorry I apologize he's a hockey Lord player. Stanley Lord Stanley the Pop <laughs> aka Lord Stanley Cup uh, we're both hockey fans we are are, are you are you Rangers or Islanders I am a Devils fan Devils but now okay. thanks to my Brooklyn Islanders with their 6,000 seats that you can't see the rink um, I'm a Brooklyn Islanders <laughs> so I'm a Winnipeg Jets fan and the Rangers and the Jets are playing tonight let's see if the Jets can finally win one you know Mark Messier in 1994 with that that grin that shit eating grin when he raised the cup I just I it, you know that he held the cup with both hands kind of at uh, uh, 6 and 12 and then raised and I like it kills me the whole you know Mateau Mateau I just can't Mateau. deal with it. I can't deal with Mateau. it. Mateau. These yeah. are scars on my childhood. So, so last time we talked about wrestling, this time we're going to spend 10 minutes talking about hockey. <laughs> uh, let's get to make space. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, They're like, put the bromance down. We want to hear some tips. <laughs> cool. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, I, I mean, make space. I, one thing that I'm really interested in that I don't think we get a chance to talk about that often on the show is operations. Sure, yeah. Um, and operationally speaking, like, you guys, you 
first of all, I saw a beautiful green makespace van with my brother-in-law. We were walking through Soho. It was planted. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and, he's, and I, I told him what it was. He's like, that's cool. I was like, actually, I, I kind of know the founder. <laughs> I, I think it was the first time that my 19-year-old brother-in-law thought I was cool. Uh, and... Um, and so operationally, like how complicated are the logistics yep. to pick up and deliver stuff all over the city yep. to uh, uh, to sure. a space in Jersey yep. and then to store it all? Like is, is, the, yeah. is the storing automated at this so, point? Let's say this, right? Like, and everyone, and there's plenty of copycats of big space. There's clones all over the world. Um, if I asked you to come to my house and pick up and move something, it wouldn't be that hard. We'd rent a truck, or you have one, and we'd move my couch, and we'd put it into a storage unit if we had to figure it out. And that's exactly what kind of I did when we started the company. But the question is to do it at scale, to do it in multiple cities, to do it at a five-star experience. We've got hundreds and hundreds of five-star Yelp reviews. Our net promoter score, which is a measure of how happy customers are and willing to recommend you to a friend, is in the high 80, like 89, 92 kind of average, which is amazing compared to even Apple and Southwest, which are often in the mid-80s, like 50 is a good score. A score. Um, the question is, how do you do it at scale? And the way that you do something operationally intensive at scale, um, think Amazon, is through amazing, amazing technology. So my background is, as a tech entrepreneur, I've started a couple companies before this one, as we talked in the last podcast, um, is building a really great web product. Now, that's on the front end, right? The ability for customers to see their stuff, push buttons, get it delivered back, take photos, um, see their you know, their, their bill, like that. that's kind of front end facing stuff in addition to how, you, how customers find you through advertising through online marketing or search engine optimization. But the back-end stuff, the, the technology that you don't see at Amazon, the technology that you don't see behind the scenes at Uber, because most people think, oh, Uber's this, but most of the engineers at Uber are working on technology on the back-end that actually are smart routes. Um, that The same way that Makespace, we do things like, our, you know, which van should we dispatch when someone pushes a button and says, you know, come to me right now? Um, which route should we take when we've got 65, 75 appointments in a day in New York? What's the best vehicles to service them? Should we go, should that one vehicle stay in Brooklyn <clears> or should it pop over into, um, you know, uh, the financial district for 20 minutes and go back for the later time slots. So all that stuff is actually, the, the way you can scale that is through technology. And what we've done is we've brought in, we've got about a 10 or 11 person product and engineering team with a CTO, um, amazing CTO who leads that effort. And that's really what enables us to be uh, a logistically intense company. Now, in terms of like packing and storing, what we've done is we've just tried to hire the best people um, who we could find. So to build on the technology side, we hire the best CTO. Now what we're doing is we hire people who are out of moving jobs because I don't know how to wrap a couch because I've not wrapped couches for 20 years, but we have guys on our on our staff who come to your house and the, the concept of make space is that you never have to visit a storage unit again and you'll never forget what's in storage. So you make an appointment, we come to your house, we provide you free moving boxes because who wants to spend 200 bucks on cardboard and it's a waste for the environment. Um, you pack up your stuff, we wrap your couches, your chairs, your dining room sets, we take it away. And the same way that you might have a 10 by 10 storage storage unit at Manhattan Mini Storage or public storage here in, in, in New York, you've got a 10 by 10 with us, and it's cheaper than your local self-storage incumbent, and I'll talk about that in a sec. But in terms of actually logistically moving that things, th those things, um, it's pretty intense, and we wouldn't be able to do it at the scale that we do it without amazing technology systems. So, like, is there an off-the-shelf uh, mapping system now, or do you have to start from scratch? Yeah, so the amazing thing is that companies like Makespace have, uh, and others have um, kind of 
uh, grown, there are off-the-shelf services for some parts. So for example, let's say I'm a bakery and I want to uh, have a customer know when I'm on the way, or pizza guy, right? Like, let's say the, uh, the, the local pizza company says, okay, I want to compete with Domino's, has this cool app that could push a button and get pizza, or you could text a pizza emoji and get your cheese pizza delivered. Um, there's a, a service, for example, called OnFleet, and I know the OnFleet team, um, but it enables you to deliver that Uber-like experience of seeing, seeing the driver en route to you. They send you a text message when they're 10 minutes out, you can open up and they there's a live map. So what's happening is developers, people are building, uh, basically making and selling pickaxes uh, for this gold rush um, that are um, outsourcing or that are kind of uh, offering off the shelf some parts. Now, the challenge for MakeSpace is, and this is why we've built everything internally, is let's <coughs> say I've got 10 vehicles out and I've got one vehicle picked up a couch and three chairs and 25 boxes, and the other one is about to go deliver 20 boxes that day. We've got different inventory levels in each, in each vehicle. That's something that is very different from a pizza delivery truck, which might literally go out with three pizzas, deliver them all, go back to the base, or let's say a floral delivery shop that literally goes out with uh, a full truck of flowers in the morning and comes back empty at noon, right? So there's different kind of different um, uh, use cases. And specifically for MakeSpace, what we've done is we've had to build that technology all internally. And I think that's going to be a core competitive advantage. Again, you could use an off-the-shelf um, software service like, like Shopify, which I love if you have a product and you're getting up and running, but you're never going to build Amazon, right? And MakeSpace's goal is to really be the Amazon of storage. Why? Um, if you think about self-storage and um, the analogy. It's kind of like um, the video store, like Blockbuster versus Netflix. You used to have to go to Blockbuster, maybe they had the title, everyone obviously knows about the big selling point of late fees, but the problem was that like, you actually had to physically go to the, the video store. You had to find the title that you wanted. If they didn't have the title, you had to choose something else. That was awful. And then you had late fees, you had to rush back, right? With local self-storage, it's very similar. Like You have to go to the place. Most people won't drive more than 20 minutes to go. They have to have the size of space available that you want, because it's like saying, you know, if, if you you have a, a, a wife and you're expecting, right? So if, and two dogs, and whatnot. so if you, if you go and you say, I need a one bedroom, let's just say for me and my wife and whatnot. And they say, well, we've got a studio and a three bedroom, which, do, which would you prefer? You're like, I don't need either of those. Mm -hmm. That happens at self storage the same way. At, Cause it's just like an apartment. And the last is really the price. So if you were to go to Pennsylvania, you'd obviously pay a lot less than what you'd pay in New York. The same way that if you were to move to Burlington, Vermont, like my family did, you'd pay a lot less than if you lived in New York city. It's no different, but the opportunity for us is to say, hey, we've built this amazing front-end system on top of our amazing back-end that says, I want that couch, and I probably don't need that couch for a little while because I don't move that couch in and out like I do my uh, ski gear or my winter clothes or my summer summer pants or my winter jackets, the things that I want to kind of keep closer to me. And Amazon's got massive facilities in Lexington, Kentucky, and they've got kind of uh, facilities in Newark, New Jersey that are smaller but can get you your stuff faster. So our concept is really to build almost like Amazon but in reverse for the storage business thus really disintermediating kind of the, the local incumbents who I think they're, it's a highly fragmented business, but at the same time offering consumers a, a unique value proposition, which is a much better service at potentially, and right now, a much lower price than even what local cell storage can, can offer. So aside from all the logistics of, of getting and picking up and dropping off and all that type of stuff, um, you know, at the at the warehouse itself, yep. is are things automated? Does, uh, does yeah. the system come in and goes on a belt and a robot gotcha. picks it yeah. up, or is it? Uh... Yeah, so so it's not like a Kiva system, like let's say like um, diapers.com, which by the way, these systems are like literally can tank yeah. a business. Yeah, Guilt yeah. Group, it's 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 known, but like Guilt Group had a, bit, a lot of trouble actually implementing a Kiva system and almost tanked the company. Uh, 
now obviously with, with what's going on the acquisition that's a totally different story but like at the time a couple of years ago it was worth a billion dollars it was, it was a big deal to implement robotics so we we literally um, we look like on the back end almost like uh, UPS scanning or FedEx scanning everything is given a barcode so when, when our uh, uh, we call them uploaders but they're drivers or movers is what customers sometimes refer them to we're uploading to the cloud that's what we like to say so when our uploaders come to your house and they pick up your stuff they're inventorying it for you right on the spot there's barcodes on all the plastic moving bins that we give you and then we append uh, we attach barcodes either um, like uh, onto the wrap or onto the onto the item directly like if it's a bicycle we've got specific ones for bikes um, and we, we attach a barcode to every single thing and people might get into right away why not do this with RFID and there's a lot of reasons why just simple um, 2D or even 3D like uh, QR codes work much better and much faster in terms of scanning UPS uses QR codes for this reasons so we pick them up our proprietary systems scan in all those items we create an inventory checklist of all the stuff you've given us and we have an audit trail so essentially let's say if not every single item got to the warehouse for whatever reason when those guys are done scanning they're going to see something on their application at that checkpoint that says hey you're missing one item or you know if we really the only failure point is at the customers in terms of not picking up from their house but then the customer still has their stuff so that's really our kind of checks and balances um, but when stuff gets back to the warehouse it's not automated because don't forget the reason why Kiva systems for let's say guilt or you know with the the grocery stuff because I know the guys at Blue Apron and Plated and whatnot, they've got really high scale systems because their transaction volume is so high. With storage, the reality is your transaction volume is very low. Most people, on average, visit even their local self-storage unit that they can drive to two to three times per year. And that's often to do the seasonal swaps. Now, there is a segment of the market like plumbers who go every single day because your local plumber might leave all of his or her supplies in a storage unit in New York so that she can and her friends can get four or coworkers can get four or five uh, things they need out of the unit and go back to the, you know, the, the job site. That's very different. That's almost like a, almost like, uh, distributed workforce, right? Like that's very different from, let's say, how most people use storage when it's death, downsized, divorce, disaster, who need a storage facility. Um, and as a result of having that low kind of turnover, when we get stuff to our warehouse, We've got guys, we've got forklifts, we've got you know conveyor systems for those bins to photo inventory them and whatnot. But it's not as high tech as you would think, like a, a transactional 3PL or an e-commerce facility like Amazon, simply because we don't need to move stuff through the warehouse as much as they do. My friend James Reinhardt runs a company called ThreadUp, and ThreadUp is amazing. They're basically doing to second hand um, what used to be clothes. Um, they're kind of rebranding as certified like new, almost like what we've done with cars. And when you walk into the ThreadUp facility, it's unbelievable but he'll turn over that whole facility and I, I don't remember it off the top of my head but maybe 30 days or less like he'll literally turn over hundreds of thousands of items in less than 30 days in terms of getting them in authenticating them and selling them to new customers MakeSpace doesn't see that with storage and the storage is a real human need one in ten um, you know US households uses storage um, because of death downsized divorce and disaster moving all the things that are life one event driven. yeah one in ten wow. and I actually think it's it should be even bigger um, but and, and more importantly, as we kind of ride this trend of people who are, you know, living in micro apartments, living in smaller spaces in New York City, the rent's going, the rent's too damn high party. <laughs> they must love make space. We'll go find that guy. Um, but like literally um, for the most, for most people who need something like storage, especially in cities where I'm really long that most people live in, and you've seen Google do things like sidewalk labs where they're like creating technology to enable mankind to sustain itself in cities. Um, there, there is a need for storage. And as a result, um, because that IO is pretty low, we can offer that service 
service where we'll move stuff outside of the city and they say, hey, I'll trade off the latency of 24 hours or 48 hours of getting my stuff back for this price. And in the future, as we build a network of facilities, I'm, I'm very open about this, we'll even do something like, hey, if you don't want your couch back for seven days, the same way Amazon says, if you do two day shipping, it's a little bit uh, more expensive than one week shipping. If it only, if I, if, if I can have seven days to get your couch back, then I can move it to Pennsylvania to a million square foot facility and you never have to visit at all. But that's something no customer would ever do. Right, so we see this real opportunity because our logistics are very different from the thousands or millions of meals um, that Blue Apron has to prepare in, in a day or a month. Very, very, very different. Right. And from the subscription standpoint, you know, storage is kind of like the ultimate <clears throat> utility, kind of similar to cable. Most people don't cut the cord. I cut the cord years ago. Um, I hope you do. Um, Done. Good. Seven, eight years ago. <laughs> good, 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 good. Awesome. But I didn't cut it in order to like watch things online. I just cut it to not watch television. Yeah, yeah I cut it to not watch, not watch television, also to save like a hundred plus bucks a month it's, sure. it was ridiculous um, and I did it when I was broke and now I'm just like I can afford it now but I actually don't enjoy the TV that much but what I was saying to the the, the point is <laughs> around that is you know there's this real opportunity because storage the storage business is very different from other types of utilities other types of even these on-demand services other types of these right. subscription services our churns really low that said the lifetime value is high but it is expensive to acquire these customers so one of the other sides of not just being really good operationally it's being really good in terms of marketing and acquiring customers if I told you you're an e-commerce company, you might I, I might expect if you're an e-commerce company, the customer might be worth 100, 150 bucks lifetime, and you might be acquiring them for call it $10. Now, the, the classic uh, VC wants to know if they put a dollar in, how many dollars are they getting back out? Right? Am I putting $1 in and getting $3 out? Am I putting $1 in and getting $10 out? That kind of acquisition cost to lifetime value ratio is really important to them. Now, when we tell in investors or when we talk about it internally that we spend hundreds of dollars to acquire a customer, you might go, holy shit, that's 150 times what you know you got do it on an e-commerce uh, company. But our lifetime value, what the customer is worth, is in the thousands, right? The lifetime value of you to your landlord is thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year. So, you know, they're willing to pay some broker or whatever, you know, the fee, that, not in New York, everywhere else it seems like, um, to, the fee to, to find that person to, to fill up the unit, right? right. So, so that's really what, from an economic standpoint, not only have we changed kind of consumer experience, not only have we changed the logistics experience and making a lot more like a logistics play than a do-it-all-yourself play, we also kind of changing how, we, how customers are actually finding storage. And that's something in our benefit, which is in 2013, it was the first time that um, in the in the in the kind of the storage almanac, <laughs> literally, um, they said that people found storage online versus driving mm. around, and that's like literally saying, okay, it was 1998, and all of us were going into travel agents. Still, it's like, no, we were booking stuff online. By the way, most travel today is still booked through an agent. It's crazy. Really? Yeah, it, most travel today, I think it's about, I think it's about 60. percent I, I saw the number yesterday, um, but most travel today is booked through um, an agent, and it, it's surprising. It's U.S. travel. It wasn't like international. It's surprising, but the the same way says to like, I think it's something on average like ten to eighteen percent somewhere in that range of uh, Uber users use it more than once a month. I use it like four times a week, right. but it's the power users like myself or you know on these services. It's really that you know ten or twenty percent rule, you know twenty percent eighty twenty rule. That's really what drives a lot of this. And for MakeSpace, we just don't have that IO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Two things that I... I sure. One is, I'm remembering the name James Reinhardt. I want him on the show. So just, I'm just going to I'll get James on the show. That, Done. that afterwards. Done. James uh, is great. 
<laughs> too, is uh, yeah. So the consumer habit there. I, I'm, yeah. I'm curious how many in the history of of MakeSpace. Yeah. I mean, I, you don't give me a percentage. I don't give you. you don't ask you for the number itself. But what percentage of people have just dropped stuff off and never called again? Like ever? Well, like I don't never. know yet, right? Because we're only around for about. But I mean, I mean, if you have if you have a hundred people, fifty percent of the stuff sits there and hasn't moved yet. Has never moved. No. So people just drop it off, and it sits there forever. But Do, here's are the thing: people deluding themselves. Do they think they're going to need this at some point, and they just don't, or. Me, no. Right? So some people. So here's a here's the challenge with space. Space is not a very rational decision. Whether it's make space, literally in storage, or even your home. Let's let's take an example. Um, my apartment. I don't know the total square footage, but for simple math, let's call it six hundred. Uh, let's call it uh, five hundred square feet. Right. I pay three thousand dollars a month. That's six dollars a square foot, basically, in terms of my. How much it cost me to live in that place per square foot? Let's say then um, per month per month. So then let's say I've got a closet. How big's that closet? Twenty, uh, hundred square feet? I don't know. Maybe hundred square feet of three thousand. You buy four. Yeah, so maybe hundred square. Twelve square feet. Oh, twelve square feet. Okay, and then vertically, right? So, so there's some math that we have to do here and saying like how much I actually in terms of the closet space, right? Like how much is how much is my bathroom actually costing me? How much is my closet actually costing me? If my closet's costing me a hundred dollars a month, it's it might actually have a decent sized closet. So let's just call it two hundred bucks a month if I would do some basic math on what that costs. That means I have a two hundred dollar a month budget to buy new clothes. Or else I should just like throw them out every month because right. why else would I like you're you're paying money to keep them in this closet? Okay. The same way like it, you know when when pe- people don't think about well does that mean you've got IKEA furniture in a three thousand dollar a month apartment because like should you have more expensive furniture because otherwise like you, what what are you doing with this cheap furniture? So it's really an interesting concept around okay. paying for space. That's, that's interesting. That's how I look at it. Okay. So the challenge that what, I'm trying what, to follow you quickly, but I, I, I think I'm, I'm also not doing the math right. Uh, I don't have pen and paper, but what I would say is when I talk to investors and say you know why is someone putting something into storage i could take the example of like why put your let's say you you know you have one child and you're on to the second child why put the stroller into storage for three years because there might be some sentimental value to the stroller why do i still hang on to a college diploma even though i will never apply for a job again that i need to show a degree right it's just like there are things in our lives that are sentimental more importantly it's they're your things there's transactional costs that go into finding a new chair that's more above and beyond the dollar uh, uh, worth of your time. It might be the sentimental cost of finding a chair that you love just as much. So when people are driven to kind of use storage, they're using it, what we're seeing in two ways. There's the traditional reasons why they might need, need storage. If you're downsizing because you meet the woman or man of your dreams and all of a sudden you want to live together, what do you do with all your stuff? Because in a few years you might want to move into the country. Then you might actually want to hold on to those items and rather than spending thousands of more to get a house in Manhattan that can fill all your stuff, you say, we're going to put it into a storage unit. Um, there's disaster, which is how I got into it with my ex-girlfriend. Ex-girlfriend got hit by Hurricane right. Sandy, lost everything. You're not going to throw everything out and buy everything new again. I'm sure she wanted to do that, but that wasn't what I was going to do, the rational Jew. Um, there was no way I was going to do that, right? So it was like, let's put it somewhere until we figured out. And she was in for about 12 to 18 months. But the reality is, while we were in there, we're like, we went out at one time to go visit the storage unit. We couldn't find anything. It was like this huge brick wall as soon as you opened the doors and you close them back up and say, ah, screw it. I don't want to deal with this on a Saturday. So my value proposition, what I, my hypothesis is, as we start to act like Amazon, potentially even lower the price for storage, I think we're gonna extend the lifetime of those customers who say, look, not only did I go into this unit because I had a death or downside, divorce, disaster, but it's cheaper than where I live, 
right? One in third Americans by the Department of Energy can't fit two cars in their two car garage because one, one half of the garage is filled up with stuff. I don't think this is a consumerism problem. I think it's a space problem. We don't have that problem in, in New York because we've got smaller spaces, so we just can't fill it up. And I've done drop-offs from Brownsville, Brooklyn, literally in the projects, to 15 CPW, uh, 15 Central Park West, which is like a $40 million apartment, and like A-Rod lives in the building or something like that. And they all have the same problem. They filled up the space that they have. They need to put their stuff somewhere. Maybe they're getting evicted or maybe they're moving or maybe they have a, another kid and we all just need space. And our value proposition is if Western Pennsylvania, if Burlington, Vermont, if uh, Newark, New Jersey or Secaucus is always cheaper than let's call it um, Manhattan or Brooklyn or Williamsburg or Queens or the South Bronx, as long as that holds true, then it's economically sound to move your stuff or have someone move it for you, as long as it's cost effective, um, to a place if you need more space. There's something you said that was interesting before when you're talking about like micro apartments yeah. and this whole tidying yeah. up trend. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with the book Marie Tidy, Kondo, Tidying Up. And, yeah, and, um, and I mean, she's less focused on on I, I, on. Uh, yeah on micro than just get rid. Yeah, um, totally. And I'm but, very much a minimalist, by the way, which is what people... But, but, please, I, I think so. No, I think so. Too. I, I'm, I'm certainly one, too. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. constantly trying to trying to get rid yep. as the easiest way to stay organized. Yep. Um, does any of that... You know, it's less... It's So So here's the thing. If you were to ask some, you know, bigwig from, from public storage or CubeSmart or ExtraSpace, you know, the big, Uncle Bob's, the big kind of publicly traded companies, they're going to say, make space is a pimple on the butt. They're like, this isn't a thing. This is some g- guy running around. My point is we we literally prevent... Uh, sorry, provide a much better value proposition than your local self-storage competitor, the local DIY. And as a result, I literally, like you'll see in 2016, we will literally go into storage units and raid them and let people get out of storage because they've all forgotten what's in storage. They hate going there. The bill's too high. The rent's too damn high. So we need to make it possible for them to actually use storage in a much more meaningful way. To your point around, is there this new market potential? Is there this opportunity that you're living in a small 300 square foot, 250 square feet because the, the habitability has been changed here in New York, Washington, Washington, Oregon, California for the size of a habitable apartment from like 450 square feet to less than that. I think it's about 250 now. And what you're seeing is these micro apartments. The cost of, if I, if I remember correctly, the cost of per square foot is more expensive in Hanoi, Vietnam than it is in New York City. And people don't think about it that way because if you go to Hanoi, Vietnam, you're going to see literally like I did when I was there. I saw eight, ten people, a family living in a small space that's smaller than the studio that we're in here. And it went up, you know, maybe 10, 12 feet. It was lofted, but it was a small space because it was very expensive. Now, their absolute rent was much cheaper than mine, but by square footage basis, it was much higher. And what I think is going to happen is, and I'm not a city person, right? Like I love skiing and playing ice hockey on, on fresh ponds. Like I'm not a city person. Uh, I should say I'm not a city person for life. I'm probably a, a occasional city person, but mankind will, con- our growth of our economies globally sure. are in future, uh, are in cities. Sure. The, the future of that is an information economy, not manufacturing as much as it used to be. Obviously, I think manufacturing would be huge. Not farming. There's alternate methods of, of growing uh, fruits. We're much more productive with our land use now. You don't need as much space as you used to need for, uh, for basically GDP, to create GDP. So I see that as information economy. I see that as knowledge workers. And for us, that is in cities because it requires some amount of connection with others. In the future, I think with virtual reality, you'll see that uh, probably potentially even buck the trend and go the other way, that people are more dispersed. Um, I'm not sure how that plays out. I'm not sure when that plays out, especially with self-driving cars, because then it 
becomes a push button to get there. But the future for the most part in my mind is how do we and how do we make it sustainable to grow cities faster than we ever have before? And something like MakeSpace, if you're living in a 300 square foot apartment, just like many of our customers are kind of two ladies sitting in the East Village saying all these winter clothes are taking up every single closet in our, uh, our apartment. What do we do? They call MakeSpace and we make their life better. And for the less than the price of, like I said, their closet might cost, they can put it into MakeSpace and have a second closet. But for most people, what's driving a massive amount of our growth is people with a classic traditional storage need. Uh, as I said, there were kind of four drivers plus moving is highly correlated that need to put their stuff someplace for a little while. And they in this business, the other thing that's not really rational is um, most people expect to go in for two months. Like if you ask them how long you're storing for, they're saying I'm storing for two months. But on average, they store between eight and ten. Um, in New York, it's a little bit higher because of this like long-term storage problem where people are like I just need a storage unit because I've got no space. But that's that's the crazy thing is the average at public storage is three years, but the median is one, and the expectation is two two and a half three months. Mm. So most people don't actually foresee themselves needing this for a while, but then they do and they get lazy and they say <laughs> oh, I don't want to go down there on a Saturday. Let's just leave the boxes. And all of a sudden they say, holy crap, we're spending 150 bucks a month. We got that first month for a dollar. What are we doing? Mm -hmm. Let's go out and empty out the whole thing. When I started the business, um, so you know, maybe some tips for entrepreneurs. When you're validating an idea, one of the things you can do is like look at all the secondary stuff happening around the market. It kind of shows you that there's something interesting going on here that people are, are trying to hack, right? So one of the things that I did is I, I went to uh, TaskRabbit.com when I started the business and I started researching, and I typed in the word storage unit, and there were thousands of jobs of people saying, "Go to my storage unit and clean it out." Oh my god! Now, why is that interesting? You would have thought, Sam, start a storage unit cleanout service. Well, I don't need to start 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I don't need to start college hunks hauling junk. And I met the founder there. He's a super cool dude. I said, the problem is with the storage in the first place, not with getting the stuff out. But that, that, that tidbit of information helped me realize, wow, like there's something wrong with storage, which is causing thousands of people to have to go to TaskRabbit to say, can you please go to my storage unit and clean it out for me? Because they forgot what's there. They feel like they're paying too much. Um, they don't want to schlep there on their Saturday because maybe they're going to how, how much cheaper are you than, than the, how, much, how much cheaper is make space than public storage in New York? Well, so it all depends. It's like saying, do Ballpark, you want to, I mean, well, let me, let me, let me give you an okay. example. Let's say Manhattan mini storage are the biggest here in New York. It, do you want to be at the George Washington Bridge where they have a facility? Do you want to be at the South Street Seaport? Do you want it to be on First and First? Do you want it to be in Chelsea? Where do you live? Right? It's like it's all depending. And where are you willing to travel? I presume you don't live at the George Washington Bridge. I presume you don't live at the South Street Seaport either. So it, it's you know some people want it close to them, but like I said, they're at ninety nine percent, ninety eight, ninety nine, somewhere in that range percent utilization. So maybe they got one or two or ten. Per, per facility per month. So it's not a lot of availability. The same way my apartment complex is fully sold out. And maybe one comes on every year or every couple of years. So the challenge is, where do you as a customer want to store your stuff? And that will help determine the price. With MakeSpace, we've got one simple price. Is it a 10 by 10? Now, it might be more expensive relative to some areas. Um, then let's say let's say you're let's say you have a 10 by 10 out by JFK by the airport. The 10 by 10 there might be half the price as the 10 by 10 on first and first. MakeSpace has to come up with a price that can kind of compete with it all. Right. So to give an example, I believe <clears throat> our 10 by 10 off the top of my head, and I don't have it with me, I believe our 10 by 10 is $249 a month. 
If you go to the airport, literally out by JFK, you can get a 10 by 10 by 249. Now, you still have to do DIY. You have to do it yourself. You have to schlep it there. You have to buy the insurance. You have to go there on a Saturday. So I think even at parity, even at 249, we present a much better value proposition to the customers. And the big self-storage guys will say, well, you can't go in on Christmas. Like, no one wants to go to storage unit on Christmas. We'll get you before the day before anyway, right? <laughs> the reality is most people don't go on the damn Christmas. Okay, so now that that's taken care of, let's say now you're in the East Village. You might pay 600 bucks a month for a 10 by 10. Why? And by the way, that price is going to go up 3.5% per year. Why? When's the last time you paid less in your apartment? Right. Did they say, oh, we had so many people who want to live at, at you know on 9th Street okay. and 5th Avenue that we decided to cut rates because right. so many people want to be here. No, there's so many people who want to live there. So what do you do? You got to lower rates. Uh, sorry, increase rates. You got to make it okay. more expensive to live there. It's, it's a re- Think of this as a real estate business. Right. So first and first, way more expensive than George Washington Bridge because yeah. less people want to schlep there or live there. Right. So as a result, in some cases, to answer your question now, it's an entirety because I, I love giving long-winded answers. Um, it's probably parity with the furthest parts, kind of the outskirts of the city, like Brooklyn, like, right. like by the airport. And it could be half the price of someplace like uh, you know, central Manhattan. So you can, you can be like, sort of, I think about business and I'm not much of a, a consulting kind of guy, but I think I'm in quadrants kind of yep. like, you can be a high volume, low margin person. You can be able I really hope you're not a you know a low mo- low volume low margin person. No, that's no, a very no. tough place to be. You can be a yep. You know you can be a, a high volume high margin person. Yep. And, you know so uh, you know you got two axes. Yes. And, and so I obviously everyone obviously well not everyone but uh, you know, the most desirable place to be would be high volume high margin right. Yeah. So you know long way of saying like did it, did you, I'm not, do you want to be competing on price? I'm going to take a step in, back. In I don't business? think that the best, and I'm not an economist, so this is me going off the cuff. I don't know if the best business is high margin, high volume. Let's take Uber and Amazon. It seems to me like both are high volume, low, low margin. margin. Because Jeff Bezos would say, your margin is my opportunity. Right? If you're high margin, high volume, someone else can come in. Because the thing is about high volume transactions means it's top of mind a lot. You've eaten many times this week. You've taken cabs a few times this week or transportation in general because they're attacking really transportation, not just taxis. Um, but high volume, low margin is defensible. High volume, high margin becomes problematic because a new entry can come and say, hey, we're high volume too, but we're, we're cheaper. So really to me, the area that I think I want to be. I don't know. I'm not an economist. I'm not, you know, Ken Elzinga from my UVA class who was like Bill Gates's personal economist or some shit like that. Like, I'm not that brilliant. I just move boxes. But high volume, super top of mind, low margin, Amazon is really defensible. Because how the hell are you going to compete? Because it's, I need to buy diapers and I need to buy, you know, snack bars. I need to buy dog food. I need to buy candles. I keep, I keep buying toilet paper. I keep going back to Amazon. But the, the margin they make is really small. But as a result, that makes it very, 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 very difficult for new entrants to enter the market because they can't get to the margin, uh, the cost for the consumer with the margin baked in that Amazon can because the volume's so high. Uber, you know, with Uber and Lyft and all these other ones, I think though their goal is to get to high volume, which they are, low margin and then potentially over time just like Amazon has done slightly raise prices right. because they've now can come compete so that's fair so, like, so this is on a day today where you know in the uh, I'll let you get back in but on a yeah, day, yeah, day yeah. today where um, Gillette which has a high margin um, you know high volume yep. razor business yep. is suing Dollar Shave Club yep. which has a 
I mean, relatively relatively low, but still quite impressive for what they've done. Um, you know, high volume, uh, relative, low volume relative Gillette, right. high volume, right. um, low margin business. Where I guess you're saying, you know, there was an opportunity because there was the high margin existed for them to come in. That said, I'm still a high. I, I still like my my my, I, I hear my low volume high margin business, which I'm trying to become. A, but, but this more is, a, a, a high volume high margin but, business. But, but what I think the challenge is even saying like it's count, it's a little bit counterintuitive to me. I grew up as a kid whose mother never let me. Ca- Ne- never carried debt on a credit card. My mother never had credit card debt. My mother sure. controlled the finances for sure. the home, and she was the breadwinner. So two very unique things. I'm going to jump in and say good for her. I don't know where you're going, but I think that's great. So what I was going to say is most people, when they think about taking on debt, like when I had student loans, I was like, i got to pay these off right away. My mom's like, no, you need to show that you can service debt, that you can pay debt. Because that's how you build credit. The way you build credit is not by paying your credit card down every month to zero. And then sometimes my mother would, controllably set money aside and pay that bill, not the minimum, but pay that bill over time because she needed to show, to cre- we, I have over 800 credit scores since I was like in my 20s. I'm, I just t- turned 30 and I'll be 31 soon. Because my mother taught me, you have to have the money. It's not like you use a credit card because you don't have the money. You use a credit card because you don't have cash with you. You've got the cash set aside and you service that debt. You pay that down. And that's actually showing banks your ability to borrow money and pay it back, which which most people can't do because they use credit cards because they don't have the money and then they want to pay the minimum over time and they get into credit card hell. So, you know, what I would say is even how with personal finances, yeah, I'm not giving any advice. I'm not Susie Orman either, but my dog's probably much cuter and maybe he could be on the show. Um, but, you know, what the opportunity... You lost me with that, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning Susie Orman would say, uh, oh, he's cute and smart, So, but Stanley's the cute one. Okay, um, gotcha, gotcha, okay. Um, I think the opportunity here is a little bit counterintuitive, which the the best potential business is a high volume, super top of mind transaction costs. Um, uh, uh, you know the volume. It, it, it's it's a you know it's grocery stores. I go all the time. It's going to be really hard to open up a new Whole Foods down the street for me and get me to go if you can't offer similar prices. Uber. It's going to be super hard if you can't beat Uber's prices. I'm not riding with you. Um, Amazon. If you're not yes, there are super high end retailers that I can get stuff that's that doesn't go to Amazon. But for most things, and this is why I I barely visit CVS and. Dwayne Reed, and that makes it very difficult for them because I, I mostly use Amazon. So I would say it's a little bit because the the high margin, high volume sounds good, but to me as an entrepreneur, it sounds to me like a big threat because another competitor could come in and steal well, my margin. I guess margin. that's what makes the world go around. I'm going to disagree with you on this one, and fine. I'm going to say that I'm just going to steal you, your margin you just, next if, time we if, start if competing. You listen business. to <laughs> listen to our episode with Benzie Ronan, who started Farmago, which is a yeah, I know Farmago, which, yeah. so direct to table uh, yep. grocery, or or for that sake. Um, uh, my, my friend Mike Winnick, who started Our Harvest, which is yep. Uh, yep. sort of a, a variation on the same concept, they would say the margins are so low at at, at the supermarket yep. that they are constantly imperiled because if they just lose the tiniest volume, they're going under. And that's, I mean, that's what there's that, one caveat. You know, Benzie what? actually predicted that we're going to see some big supermarket Chains. chains go under as more groceries go online because their cost structure is. There's one caveat, up. which is. Yeah. I think you must be providing a commodity in those situations. Okay. So with the groceries, you might say, hey, you get your groceries fresher because they come direct from the farm or you get pro- you know produce that you true, can't yeah. buy. So that's the thing is food is not a commodity. This is why Instacart has a very tough business because people are very particular. You didn't get me the exact chocolate that I wanted. Give me that chocolate for free and then go buy me the other one. Like this right. is super hard. This is why cleaning services like HomeJoy have a hard time because my apartment's not a commodity. I want my – you can't have a standard way to clean the if you wipe down the inside of my medicine cabinet, I might be okay with that. You might see that as a violation right. of your privacy. Right. So the problem with providing these in a non-commodity business is very difficult. Uber is a damn commodity. 
It's a car. It's the back of a car. I don't care if it's a Cadillac Escalade or a, a, you know, a two-seater. It's a car. It's getting you from point A to point B. Now, over time, they're going to build in, whether it's the car seats or the VIP or the pool and these other things. But the transportation itself. Car seats are huge. I, I do. Uh, we I'm not a parent. all the time for the car I seats. Know, I know. Yep, but crazy. the point is, I think when you have a commodity, again, I go back to Uber. I go to Amazon, like diapers. Diapers is a commodity. For the most part, diapers is a commodity. And I can buy them at, at uh, uh, Dwayne Reed or CVS or Amazon. So when you're doing that, if you're providing a commodity service, margin, I think, is a, is a bigger threat. Gross, uh, high margin is a bigger threat to new entrants into the market. That's, and that's my non-economists. I, I did okay in econ, but failed like U.S. history. So I've never, I can't tell you, but talk to you about Dutch tulips and all this stuff. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I want to talk to you about <laughs> how you, you know, reveal value to a VC and how, how yeah. you know how you're, they're they're really interested in lifetime value. You know, for someone who's listening to the show who hasn't been in front of VCs, yeah. where, how did you get in front of your VCs? I'll and, tell you. And really I'll tell you. Give us I'll like people you. like oh, I was in front What's, of thirty VCs. And, here's the thing. But you've got an A list. You know, you've yeah. got Founders Fund. I think Look, Dave McClure, got, David Tish, Alexis Ohanian, yeah. Mark Suster, uh, Founders Jeff Lewis and Gary Founders Vaynerchuk, Fund, Gary Vaynerchuk, yeah. Scott Belsky. I, I mean, uh, Dave Marin, Sam Less, and the Facebook guys. Like beyond lucky. Um. VCs, and there are imitators VC, out there who, of course, who of don't course, have these guys. Let's so let's be what are you real. Doing let's be real. VCs see dollar signs in their eyes, of course. But what I think VCs see more than anything is someone they can trust with their money. And I would say that you know people think I, I, I've come to realize through my six-ish years in tech startups that that execution is everything and ideas are dime a dozen. I saw, I knew someone working on taxi stuff before Uber. When I was at Seamless, we had Seamless for black cars up on the board, right? Like, cause when you were a banking person, when you were a banker, a dentist, or an office, a, a law firm, you would order food the same way that you'd order your car, right? Like I saw uh, Uber for, you know, Seamless for Uber 10 years ago when I was at Seamless. Um, but why did Travis create Uber? Because he's Travis, and why did Travis raise the amount of money as he did versus whether, I know John and Logan, who've done extremely well, versus all the other ones, and I'm talking about the ones you've never even heard of, right? Because those are the ones that just did not raise money. There's, the ideas are a dime a dozen. Um, and more importantly, um, I think the scarce thing is the number of uh, entrepreneurs who are backable. The number of people, just amazing quality people that um, VCs trust, because they have a fiduciary responsibility with their investors too, um, that they can trust with millions of dollars. I've been you know, very lucky, um, but at the same time, I think what VC saw was someone who it didn't matter if it was ten dollars or a million dollars or ten million dollars or hopefully one day a hundred million dollars. I would treat each dollar the same as almost if it were my last. And super, super high moral compass. Um, I've been asked a lot to invest lately. Like I've got a a little bit of money. Sometimes I'll put into some startups, and and I'm being asked because I've I've realized, and I'm a little I'm surprised by it, but I try my best to to stay low. But people are saying, oh Sam, you you've got a lot of experience. You know a lot of people. We'd love to have you involved. And what I realize is the hard part is not saying that the idea is good or bad. The hard part is saying, do I know this person well enough? And that's why, you know, Mark Suster, my, my board member, has a, a very well-known blog post, and it's the thing he's known for, which is called Invest in Lines, Not Dots. And I highly recommend reading it. Mark says, basically, I'm not going to go to a, a, a demo day and say, say meet the entrepreneur on stage and then 
two hours later say, here's a term sheet. Yeah. I don't know them. That's not my style. Mark says, I invest in lines. And what a line is, is you know you connect the dots, right? And you create a line. And over time, you can say, wow, I saw this person at the party. And then they gave me a ride. And if you literally read my story, it was like, I left banking in 2009. I hated it. Um, I started working on projects on my own. I couldn't get things off the ground. I started messaging. You know, I actually got to my very first person that I ever knew was David Tish in New York. Because my brother used to work with the GC at Pershing Square uh, at a law firm. And the guy said, oh, this, guy, this young guy manages my money. He's a nice Jewish boy. Go meet him. It was David Tish before he ever did tech stars, right? And he was, David was an under-the-radar guy. He wasn't a, he's very high profile now. He's an amazing angel investor. But it was when David was just starting angel investing. And I said, okay, I met this guy. And I didn't know my ass from the elbow. And I was like all over the place. And David you know, was very kind to me. But the reality was, I think what David saw was a mensch. And every person that I work with is a, is a true mensch. And I think they saw that in me. And I've seen some crazy stuff crazy. I've seen tax fraud. I've seen um, psychopaths, like just straight up lying. I've seen uh, people embezzle. I've seen it all. But none of my investors would ever say that 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 would happen with me. And I think what is what when you sell a VC up until a certain stage, I think at series C, like seed, angel seed, A and B can be sold on a story and on the person telling the story. They want to believe that you are the person to build Uber. They want to believe that you are the guys building sure. Google. They want to believe that you are the one. Why do they believe that you were the guy? Like, what what was it that you were presenting? Beyond, so I think there's a, the fact that you know you, you I think, cultivated relationships. Yeah. All the time. So I think there's a few things. And, and Mark Schuster again, who's like my my mentor, has a, a blog post on kind of what he inve- what he looks for in entrepreneurs, and he talks about a few things. I think one of the first things is just straight up street smarts, right? Someone who is really street smart. And I grew up, um, you know, kind of you know lower middle class. My father. And my Mother, um, I, both were pharmacists, but then my father was a car salesman. I'm kind of Willie Loman like, and he, he was always ahead of the times, but he just never could make it, you know, get his big break. Um, he was much better as a performer than a sales guy, right? But his performing is the same sales. I don't care if you're acting on stage or you're selling Cutco knives like I did at 18. You're you're a performer. And what I think they saw with me was a high moral compass and an integrity. That was the first thing, right? I remember when I quit my job at Citigroup. It was 2009, and uh, it was like Tuesday or Wednesday during the week. And I was working on a startup. What the hell did that mean? It was like I was tinkering around with like mock-up designs. And there was a party on like a Tuesday night and that I was invited to. And it was like a really cool party to go to. And I didn't go. And my roommate um, upstairs um, said to me, uh, why aren't you going to this party? Like, you don't have to work tomorrow. I said, yes, I do. I got I to work on my startup. What startup? He's like, you have no company. You've got no project. Like, you're, you're working on these designs. Like, you're sketching shit out on a notepad. Like, no, I have to work. Very different mindset. And for me, it was like in delaying that gratification for as long as possible. I didn't care about the party. Like I cared about the vision in my head for one day I will be an entrepreneur. One day I'll be a CEO. One day I'll have hundreds of employees. One day I'll raise millions of dollars of venture capital. One day I'll have thousands of customers that are happy with our service. It, but in that very moment, I had nothing. I could have gone to that party, but I don't think I'd be be where I was, where I am, if I went to that party, because it probably means that I would have had a different mindset that would not cut it out. Um, there's another thing Mark uh, has a, on his blog called entrepreneur shit, which is like, do you want to? 
you know, move cross country twice and leave mm -hmm. your girlfriend behind? Do you want to <clears> give up that time with your child? Do you want to go into debt? I, I went 16 grand into debt to move to Los Angeles. I put an $8,000 car on my credit card because I couldn't get a loan. So I put it on a credit card and, and paid, I had to, uh, had to pay it down and I eventually paid it off and then paid off my student loans with the sale of that, that car, right? It was like, I bet I was willing to bet on myself. And that's another thing that I don't think many people are willing to do. People will say, oh, I want to get $25,000 to start right. working on this project. I have a million people doing that. But the, one of the best pieces of advice that's ever given to me was my friend, by my friend Dan, who is an entrepreneur. He runs a company, um, co-founder of a company called Zozi. Super smart guy. And he, you know, look. Just, just James Reinhardt. James Reinhardt, Zozi, you can add them all. Okay. They're all amazing people. I can give you a list. Um, but Zozi, the interesting thing about Zozi is they were starting to do really well. And Dan didn't have any money because there's no liquidity events and nothing happened yet. And his salary was kept, you know, we keep our salaries low to put money into the company and give it to employees. And he wanted to buy something. And I was in this situation where he just bought it. I was like, dude, why'd you buy that? It's a little more expensive. And he said, Sam, he said, the best piece of advice ever given to me, and I'm gonna give it to you, which is, do you believe in yourself? Do you believe that you will, you will make this money back? Do you believe that one day you'll be able to afford this? I said, absolutely. He said, buy it now. Enjoy it now. Now, many people are not willing to do that, and it's a little bit, uh, it goes a little bit against what I said before about the credit card not having the money. The difference is that I know I will pay it back. I'm that confident. I think that's another third thing, which is like, almost like a delusional optimism. For me, is like, there's no damn freaking way I will fail. There's no way. I will not fail. I was the best hockey player when I was the smallest guy. I was the captain of the hockey team when I was the nerd at the top of my class. Like, I, I just, I will not fail. And that delusional optimism and that conviction, I think is a massive thing for people, especially when uh, investing in someone. Because what you want is not only a person that thinks they won't fail, but literally will not stop trying. And I, I think of like that movie Men of Honor with uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., which I love. Right? Like, give me my, you haven't seen it? Yeah. I want my tail steps, cookie. Like, it's Robert De Niro and, and Cuba Gooding Jr. I'm a character, I know. But you got the point is like, he would not give up. Right, like there's no way that he was going to give up. It was about Chief uh, Master Diver Carl Bashir, who was an African American, became first Master Diver. He lost the leg, and he was yeah. amputated. And this guy went into the courtroom. They wanted to make him not allow him not be a Master Diver. And he said, "No, I'm going to walk on a prosthetic leg." And they did the whole thing with the new diving suit and the brass was four times as much. Blah 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 blah. And the point is, like that dude wasn't going to give up. And this is like whenever I whenever I I see inspirational motivational people, because again, it's not about the idea. I have to take entrepreneurship and the entrepreneur and separate them. Ideas are dime a dozen. I have no doubt in my mind that if I started any other type of company today, I hear brilliant ideas all the time, that I could be really successful at it with my business partner. Sure. I could take my entire team, MakeSpace, we could shut down MakeSpace as an entity, and I know that we could be, build a very other successful company because of the people around us, the diverse skill sets, the diverse ideas, because we have a diverse workforce in terms of people. It's not all you know people that look like me. It's not all white Jewish men in their 30s, right? It's a diverse uh, environment, so we have different ideas that kind of come together. So that is what I think makes entrepreneurs successful. And that is what I think makes anyone who's willing to part ways with capital uh, and, and invest, um, you know, buy into that person. My brother said to me when Dave McClure, Dave McClure wrote me my first Jeffrey check, and I'm forever grateful to him. And he said to me, look, Sam, don't get me wrong. Mark, Dave McClure sees dollar signs in your eyes. Like, it, it, sorry, Dave McClure has dollar signs in his eyes. Like he sees someone, he might like you as a person, but he sees someone who is backable. And that backable, whether it's the street smarts or uh, the 
the conviction or the integrity. Um, and there's a, probably a whole list of characters. Again, Mark, Mark does a much better job at me than laying it out. Um, those are the things that I think VCs or investors or partners are willing to do. Why does your wife choose you? Because she says, he's not going to leave me for another woman. He's going to love me for the rest of the time. He's going to be the great father to my children. He's going to provide for me. and gives her, There's all these things. It's, it's no different from dating. And hopefully, your marriage lasts a very, very, very long time. I know you're expecting, so I hope I didn't. Sorry? I certainly hope so. Exactly. But the the point is like when you choose a partner, okay, they're maybe not the most pretty man or woman that you have been with in your not your your wife. (laughs) She's definitely out of your league. No, I don't even know what she looks like. But the point is like you you have to choose a variety of factors and they're not like again, I've seen Brilliant ideas that you think change the world, but they're duds because the person can't. Accept. I agree with that. Actually, I mean that's something I, I really do agree with. When you're when you're investing, you're investing in someone to execute it. The, the, yeah, I agree. Ideas are definitely dime a dozen. I think we're bumping up against time again. But I what a to, surprise! I, I, I wanted to ask Stanley Part Three. One more. <laughs> <laughs> like the next 12 episodes me and Sam Rosen chatting about things um, we should just start so a show Jeremy and Sam chat I, about things we, I think we're actually good enough to start a show right, I'm dead serious okay so uh, I'm looking at our sound engineer who's like yeah we have uh, we have Taz in the studio this is way um, more entertaining than like any sports morning radio <laughs> shit the uh well, we'll let the viewers, uh, the listeners decide on that one. Uh, I hope so. Um, so I, you talked before about, about customer acquisition, and I mean, how aside from pay per click, you know, how and I'm not I'm ask, not asking for trade secrets, but do me a favor. How are you going out there and getting getting a client? Like just yeah. for, for people out there, like how do you get started? Yeah. What do you? So here's the thing: you do to get your brand out there to get people aware and wanting so, to go. Yeah, I don't want to spe- speak specifically. Decommoditize a commoditized product in some way. I don't want to speak specifically to make space right now because there's a bunch of things we can do. But I'll, I'll kind of give this advice more generally. Um, the first thing is like. The amazing thing about the internet is we can track almost everything, right? As opposed to a billboard that I put up outside and say, like, come buy my new mattress. I could literally put a mattress on Amazon, like Tuft the Needle did, and it was the best-selling mattress. Or like Casper, they sold a mattress and all of their friends were posting it on Facebook. Like, we live in an amazing world in terms of product discovery. Mm-hmm. And today's world, it's not like if you build it, they will come because the, the, you, know, you have to go out and find these pockets of customers, but there are ways to find them. So you know, one of the earliest ways you can get started on an idea, even if you don't have a make space like idea and you're like, oh, it's just a landing page. You can literally go to Unbounce or go to like Squarespace, build a landing page, buy some Google AdWords against it and say like storage for half the price of Manhattan mini storage, storage that you never have to visit, if, if I'm using storage example, or a mattress that's so comfortable that's half the price of Tempur-Pedic. You might literally be able to do that and see how many people click on that ad. The sure. same way that I said to you about the task rabbit thing. So there's ways to kind of test on the internet to see. You could go ask 20 friends, hey, when's the last time you bought a mattress? Did you go to Sleepies recently? Doesn't it suck? What do you think about buying this one? What if, what if I, what if I, would you buy this mattress? It was $800 and it was much better than Tempur-Pedic, but you didn't have to pay the Tempur-Pedic price and I sent it to you in a box. You could literally just story tell. You could tell your 20 friends, go outside your friend groups, go to coffee shops. There's all these ways to kind of get started. Because remember, what you're not doing, and this is why I'll never really like a retail business. I'm not opening a cupcake shop and trying to bake a better cupcake. Georgetown cupcakes ain't for me. It's just not the type of business I want to run because then I'm only getting people who come in the cupcake shop from a certain area. I can only, I maybe do some mail order cupcakes across the country. I like something with scale. I mean, make space. The reason for it is even though it seems like a cupcake shop, it's not the local stealth storage. That's literally the cupcake shop. This is, you know, we are traveling cupcake shop. We come all around the city and then we expand into, into hopefully 25, 30 cities across the country. So really, the ways that you can do it, yes, you can go on SEM. I wouldn't focus on SEO, which is search engine optimization, so getting your 
ranking high because it takes a long time. Um, you could do some advertising, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter. But I think the biggest thing to start is just trying to understand the problem before really trying or, or come up with a solution before really trying to figure out how to acquire those customers. It's actually what Mark Suster actually says to me a lot, which is, or other VCs, which is like, if you can't get to the VC through someone they know, then you shouldn't be, you, you shouldn't be raising capital in the first place. If you can't go find 10 people to buy your product before you have a product, then you probably shouldn't be creating something new in the first place, right? How many women that you've seen on these Dogecoin cupcakes or the stuff shows, how many men or kids even, you know, creating something new on Shark Tank? Like you're seeing men, women, uh, older, younger, doesn't matter, um, selling uh, spanks out of, you know, she sewed them together or by herself or Under Armour, the dude like got the material and got his football team to wear it. Like there's no excuse in today's world um, if you cannot get your friends to do it. So women, men, boys, uh, girls, like that's the amazing thing about entrepreneurship. It's completely democratic. Um, it's, it's there's no bureaucracy. It's flat. The woman literally started a billion dollar company called Spanx and started sewing these pieces together in her home. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing story. So for me, how do you go get customers? Just fucking do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Great, great, great examples of some gritty bootstrappers there in Spanx and uh, and Under Armour. I think we're out of time. I have no, no idea if we are suppose. or not, but uh, it's been great having Sam Rosen back. <laughs> Welcome back another time. Um, check out MakeSpace. I know that because the baby's coming for us, I think we're going to have to turn my office into a into a baby's room. So I, I think you'll be getting a couch, a desk, uh, some love, some lamps, some books oh, from us nice. pretty soon. Um, so, uh, you know, thanks for introducing me to it. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, for sure. And, um, Always and, fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. We need a morning show. I think is what we need. I think we should. You're here at CBS, right? Like, isn't this a. Yeah. Okay. We should pitch. And thanks. We will. Uh, Well, as soon as this is done. And thanks to Lord Stanley uh, for coming by. I hope you win the cup this year. And and we'll see everyone in a few weeks. Looking forward and happy holidays. Happy holidays. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.